Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 64, Art and Cultural Engagement with Dr. Greg Thornberry. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing art and cultural engagement with Dr. Greg Thornbury, who is Vice President for Development at New York Academy of Art in New York City, and is the author of Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music, Larry Norman, and the Perils of Christian Rock. Team members from the two cities on the episode include Amber Bowen, Dr. Josh Carroll, Reverend Daniel Parham, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. I think it's fair to say that we had a lot of fun with Dr. Thornbury uh, during this uh, recording. What what are some things uh, that our listeners can look forward to? Well, we talked to Dr. Thornbury about his book on Larry Norman, which is a really, really interesting book about one of the earliest figures in Christian music. Although he's a figure who's quite different from what we commonly think about Christian music today. And Thornbury really sets him up as a model for someone who is involved in culture in a way that is both prophetic and that is also skillful. Um, So he produces good art and really good music, but also has a a really powerful voice that really wakes up both the church and then the culture around him as well. What I really love about this episode is the way that we uh, lament about really bad Christian art and uh, where it comes from, what its function is, and how to avoid reproducing it. You know, I think as, as we've had this conversation, I think the, the elements of the sacred secular and how to capture that cohesion uh, is so helpful for us to get insight to. All right. Well, here's our conversation with Dr. Greg Thornbury. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Thornbury. It is a pleasure to be here with you at uh, the Two Cities Podcast. So, Dr. Thornbury, we want to have a conversation about cultural engagement in particular. Wondering what you think about this concept and how should we go about doing cultural engagement as Christians? Well, can, well, can I get something off my chest right at the start on this? About I, I have certain intel interrogations on to the whole the whole concept of cultural engagement, because I think I understand the spirit in which you guys are using it. But I also have found in my career, because I'm not in the Christian institutional world anymore. I'm at Andy Warhol's studio art school in Tribeca now. So I'm, I'm like in the art world and weeks, months, years go by where, you know, nobody is concerned with, you know, certain theological or religious language, you know, Um, but cultural engagement, I I feel like has been, um, and this is, I say, I use feel instead of think, because it may just be an impression, but it's, it's, uh, I talk to my friend, David Dark about this a lot. Like if you are using the term cultural engagement to say culture is somehow over there in a far off, distant county and you know we christians are like like occasionally we'll get in a station wagon and drive over and engage culture you know it's just it's too late culture is we're it's the air we breathe we're swimming in it like parents that send their kids to cccu schools they have the cultural engagement. The culture's already engaged them. It's already shaped them too late. And, and the only, the, I sometimes have seen the cultural engagement motif as like, it, it's Theoden of Rohan standing on top of the parapets of Helm's Deep, staring down into a sea of orcs. And like, that's the mentality, like, let us engage culture. And it's just like, it's BS. It's just not true. So if, if, if what we mean by this is uh, that, that we're happy to have conversations to anybody that's open to them, 
I'm all for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Theoden uh, um, image is, is so apt for how those kinds of Christians perceive themselves because they often perceive themselves as conquerors, right? As yeah. people who are taking back, uh, yeah. you know, what was rightfully theirs, which has all sorts of Christian nationalist overtones. Um, yeah. It, it, it also, I mean, I, 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 I do appreciate that you're undermining the idea of an essentially acultural Christianity. Um, yeah, it's essentially a white myth. It doesn't exist, right? It's it's it a total exist. white myth that we, you know, that uh, that Christians, that white Christians, don't have a culture, uh, and and of their own volition, they get to step into a kind of enculturated world, um, and 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 that makes them, you know, people who, ha who hold that kind of conception it have all sorts of blind spots to their presuppositions and how they're actually deeply enculturated by, you know, b billions of things, and you know. Uh, both past and present, um, and uh, and it leads to stuff like I'm just reading the Bible because I can just have direct access to this ancient text, and I don't have any culture with which I have to like sift through, and you know all those sorts of things. So I, I think I, I I suspect that everyone is on board with that, and our, how we use cultural I mean engagement is 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 kind of maybe intentionally maybe polemical. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm okay. So we're all on the same page. I mean, there's no such thing as, you know, kissing the Bible or the biblical world on the lips. It's always through cellophane. That's a great metaphor. Such a great metaphor. <laughs> and people can, people yeah. can, because it's clear, they can think that it's not there. Correct. <laughs> but do, does anyone want to kiss anyone through cellophane? No, but I can promise you that is the only thing that's happening when we think we're making out with the ancient world of the Bible. Another thing I've noticed about cultural engagement when we talk about it in these Christian spaces is really it's um, kind of a position of hyper critique, right? So I'm going to go and watch this movie just so that I can figure out where maybe I might be able to pull some sort of application to the gospel from it, or I might be able yeah. to see how the gospel speaks directly against it or whatever. And so there is no space for just going and enjoying a movie because it's a good piece of art. Like we always have to have this like critical gaze on by which we're continually evaluating it. So I'm wondering if you've noticed that as well. And, and, and how do we maybe start to think differently about, about our relationship to things like art? Well, I mean, I think that we've put an immense burden on people that uh, shouldn't have been there in the first place because I, I don't find any purchase from, you know, either the, the synoptic gospels or even from what we know of Paul to, to give us that idea, you know. So when we go to, I mean, the completely most worn out and misunderstood text with respect to this conversation that we're having is the Mars Hill. Nobody talks about the fact that Paul says God is not far from any of us. He uses the first person plural. He, he could have easily said, God is not far from any of you. But he doesn't say that. He says from any of us. So the standpoint is always one of inclusion, that we're all standing on the same side, looking at the same thing, and trying to figure this, this out. And, I mean, to go and... Well, Paul's the first text that we have in the New Testament, and all of the Gospels came much later than Paul. But from what we can understand about the historical Jesus, I mean, insofar as he was cultured at all, it's because he was going to the Decapolis, and he was intersecting with Greek culture. You know, I mean, he was doing work. I mean, he was just as far as we could tell, a stonemason, but not what, you know, Mel Gibson, like he's making dining room furniture or whatever that trip was. But um, he's going to the Decapolis and he's seeing 
the the Greek gymnasiums, and he's seeing the great public works. Like if you've been to Sephoris, if you've gone like on a, you know a trip to to Israel, I mean it's fantastic artistic works, cultural advancements. That's more indicative of the childhood and coming of age of Yeshua of Nazareth than is this. You know, he doesn't even know anything probably about Jerusalem until much later. I'm totally down with what you're saying about that, 100%. So Dr. Thornberry, historically, Christians have been some of the best producers of art. You know, I think of... uh, Italy in particular, whenever um, anybody tells me that they're on a trip to any town or city in Italy, I always tell them to pop into every church you see, because every church that that you could possibly pop into, if, even if you never heard of it, it's going to be one of the best museums you've ever entered, you know? But yeah. in the present day, there's so much horrible Christian art. I mean, I think of the Pure Flix films, I think of... Uh, Thomas Kincaid, I think of, uh, you know, a lot of horrible music. Uh, and, 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 and that brings us to uh, Larry Norman. And I think in your yeah. book, on, I think in your book on, on Larry Norman, Larry Norman is some, something of a solution perhaps to some of these woes. And I, I'm wondering if maybe you could, before we get to the solution, if you could maybe describe the plight a little bit for us, uh, how did we get in this situation? Well, you know, I mean, if you've read my, uh, thank you for bringing up Larry Norman, because I do think that he was um, a fly in the ointment. You know, he was a Bonhoeffarian spoke in the wheel. Um, you know, it was, he was that thing that when I was growing up, I used to watch Sesame Street and they had these episodes where there was like four boxes and it was like three of these kids are doing the same thing. Three of these kids are kind of the same. One of these kids is doing his own thing. Now it's time to play. And like, it was to help kids, like what does not go with these other ones? You know, it's, it's not like Larry was the first person to try to talk about Jesus in the late 60s, you know, on a secular record label like Capitol Records. He was definitely the first. But there were people that were like in that milieu that were doing that, but it was all kind of, you know, very earnest, pious, you know, me and Jesus in my bedroom closet, this ecstatic personal, like, and it was more tilted towards either something pietistic and privatistic, which is my own personal experience with God, which isn't translatable to culture like like if you guys want to go over there and have your thing that's fine but don't let me in on it um just like when somebody's making out in you know a a restaurant booth it's like gross like i don't need to know about that it's it's either that or the other thing that that bothered larry was the notion of propaganda he was wanting to do something that would invite people in but wasn't so overtly propagandistic that somebody couldn't listen to it as just like badass rock and roll. You know, for example, when I hear George Harrison singing, you know, hallelujah, Hare Krishna, you know, that, you know, initially back in the seventies, people thought that before they knew the background vocals or had really listened to it. There's like, oh, he's become a Christian because it's like my sweet Lord. But then they figured out that he was, you know, singing about Krishna and then like, oh, that that's different. But I can appreciate my sweet Lord without getting down with, you know, a Hindu worldview. And that's what Larry was hoping that he could do you know, while I was writing the book, I was at the home of uh, Charles Norman, Larry's brother, who produces records for people like Black Francis from the Pixies and Pete Yorn and, you know, Art Brute and all these super amazing bands. And we were talking to Isaac Brock from Modest Mouse because they were working, Charles and Isaac were working on a project together. 
And and Charles had sent Isaac as a huge vinyl head, like he listens to everything on vinyl. And so Charles had sent him a compilation vinyl that had just been done of that Larry had done. It was sort of like Larry's greatest hits, but and I heard Isaac Brock say on the phone, uh, I don't, you know, I grew up with this Jesus thing. I don't, it kind of triggers me. I don't know what to make of it. But he said, Charles, your brother was a shit hot songwriter. Like I can sit down, like Isaac Brock, even though he has a troubled past with Christianity himself, he can listen to a Larry Norman in record and, and appreciate it as an artistic statement. Even though occasionally he's like, well, why don't you look into Jesus? You know, he's kind of like occasionally pretty insistent about it. But then there's other times like on only visiting this planet, there's tracks like, you know, pardon me, kissing you when I'm afraid, but I know I'm being like, it has nothing to do with, it's not set in a religious world. So I think we always have to complicate the picture if it's going to be art. If it's straight, it's um, dogmatics. If it's tangential, then it's existential. And I think that's what Larry tried to do and failed at. Like, nobody got it. Like, so now, like, you know, he created this billion-dollar industry when Khalifa Sana wrote the New York New Yorker article about my book, he noted all these people like we wouldn't have Haley Williams from Paramore if Larry Norman didn't get this going. And yet, um, if you listen to Christian radio today, it's all praise music. It's all it's there's no artistic element in it anymore. Yeah, I <laughs> loved your book. I actually purchased it for my dad for his birthday a few years ago because um, my dad is a huge Larry Norman fan. And oh so my gosh. I grew up from the time I was born hearing my dad sing Larry Norman songs and play them on the guitar. And so, I mean, when we were kids, we would run around singing, sipping whiskey from a paper cup, drawing your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you got, you got, you got gonorrhea on yeah, Valentine's no Day. No clue what gonorrhea how <laughs> you got it on Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, no idea what Alice is a drag queen, Bowie somewhere in between. All the, I mean, no clue what any of those were, but we knew all of the words as kids. Yeah. Um, and so when I, when I saw your book come out, I was really interested in it because for me, Larry Norman was just always this person that my dad would sing about, you know? Um, and so, but reading your book really opened my eyes to how radical he was in every world. So he was very radical and offensive to, uh, the church and within Christian context, because he's talking about gonorrhea on Valentine's day, uh, you know, yellow fingers from your cigarettes. And he's speaking to Janice Joplin and to, you know, Alice, all these different people in his, in his world, um, outside of the church that he was very much engaged with. Um, but at the same time, he also is offending them as well, because he's saying, why don't you look into Jesus? He, he's kind of a thorn in everyone's flesh. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I think, I think Larry Norman and took Yeshua of Nazareth seriously. And I use Yeshua to separate him from the the greek derivation of his name jesus and the associating you know messianic title of christ which in my experience you know in in um, the evangelical christian world christ is an empty receptacle into which virtually anything can be poured and it needs to have nothing to do with Yeshua of Nazareth, who spoke Aramaic. And I think, I think Larry took Yeshua seriously. And that meant somebody who was everywhere beloved, but nowhere accepted, (laughs) which I mean, that is art, you know? Um, and, And I think that, um, he understood that he was shooting himself in the foot by not being commercial 
I mean, you have to realize that, I mean, here's somebody that had three, maybe four, depending upon the way you count, major secular record labels sign him in succession, which is, it wasn't Christian record labels that signed Larry. It was it was Capitol Records. It was uh, it was um, MGM. It was Verve. It was ABC Records. And then later on, after the Jesus Movement happened, and there was this honest to God phenomenon where everybody was singing his songs, and he was the Pied Piper of the Jesus Movement. Then all of a sudden, it was like, well, maybe Christians will start distributing his records now. When he started out with Upon This Rock in 1969, it like fit nowhere like to, to, to what you were saying, Amber. To the secular record companies, they're like, what is this? Like, nobody talks about, nobody talks about Jesus or the Lord or the Bible. And then, you know, the same, by the same token, when he went to churches, they didn't, you know, he was talking about stuff that kids were actually going through that the church didn't want to talk about, which was sex and drugs and questions and questioning your faith. And what if this, none of this is really real? So, you know, that's why, you know, I, the, the epigram that begins the book is, him saying, you know, I, it's easier to, it's easier to walk down the middle of the road than it is to, you know, walk on a tightrope above the road because you can avoid traffic on both sides. If you're in the middle of the road, if you're walking on a tightrope, you're going to fall one way or the other. And that was the constant balancing act that he was having to do. And I think that anybody who is actually successful in, in the art world has that who, who comes from a background of faith has to do that or no one takes them seriously. There might be some exceptions like a Howard Finster where it's like in your face, balls to the wall kind of thing. But if you're not trying to thread that needle Everybody knows that it's propaganda. And then you're back where you started. As you were talking, I was thinking about the world that I've grown up in, where we've mm-hmm. had a section of like interpretive lenses of like what is considered Christian, um, probably softer than what you've, what you've said, because, uh, you know, coming from a Pentecostal conservative mm. background, like you, you're, you're not going to hear any sexual reference in any, any gospel songs. Um, but it was more about the tempo and the chord. Of the and yet it's all sexual in a, <laughs> when looked through another lens, but right, continue. Right. Yeah. So even like thinking like, like the tempo and the immersion of like what is considered secular sacred comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's the challenge yeah. I've seen uh, in, in the world that I'm in. So like, like how, how do we even frame that, right? It, it feels like it's almost a deconstruction of the sacred secular piece when we consider art. Um, and case in point to what John said, like when you go to Rome, you would see nudity and we don't, we, we don't disassociate that from the beauty of the art. But yeah. we can at the same time say like, oh, we recognize nudity because of our depravity in some way, right? So it's like, how, how, do, you, how do you fuse these things together and say like, that's not nasty, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. capture that in a way that it, I think encompasses the sacred aspect of, of art. I'm so glad you brought up that sacred secular split because, I mean, we've all dealt with it for our whole lives, right? I mean, and the, the, the word seclorum in Latin means literally a time suspended between two times. That's what it means. That's what secular means. It means it, it's it, we're suspended on this rope bridge between the already and the not yet. And we still don't know the way it's going to turn out. Like faith might tell you, you know, we have a concrete vision of the way the end turns out. And, um, you know, the, the early Jesus movement at, I'm talking about the Jesus movement in the first century, thought it was all going to be over 
<laughs> by the end of the first century, they thought we were going to be having this conversation. We'd be in the middle of, I don't know, second or third millennium by this point. So, so you know, you've got you've got that, and then you've got the the not yet, which is does history have a close? You know, is there any kind of terminus to this? Is it an Augustinian view of history, or is it a Hegelian view of history? We don't know, but to the Hegelian point, it's like that's the dialectic that's in tension is between people that that want to know genuinely, because again, I, I have no dealings with uh, you know people who are either you know it's like the the Rod Dreher Eeyore the baddies are coming to get us and they're going to club us over the head and drag us away into their caves like Luke Skywalker at the beginning of The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, that's just BS. But nobody wants to do that. Nobody cares. Like, they literally don't care. <laughs> if you want to be in a ghetto somewhere and think whatever kind of obscure, you know, outdated thing that you've got that's your thing go ahead and do it but insofar as any real conversation happens that's where the magic takes place is like where you realize that maybe everything is sacred and you're not sure if there's anything that is actually secular that's so, you know, for example, I'm at an institution that was founded by Andy Warhol. And if you like your average fundamentalist um, and, and I define fundamentalist in the same way that J.J. Owens, great Hebrew prof from uh, Louisville of many years ago, wants to find it. I can see the fun in it. I can, you know, see the dam in it, but I can't see the mental in it. So that's how I'm defining fundamentalist. Okay. So, uh, you know, you, you have fundamentalists look at an Andy Warhol and say, you know, he's a gay, you know, like infidel, you know, like maybe some in some way talented, but, you know, in his lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then, I mean, since I've gone to the Academy, I've talked to Andy Warhol's best friends, like Bob Colicello, who uh, wrote the great mem you know, biography of Andy Warhol. He ran Interview Magazine. He knew Andy Warhol well. And, you know, the other side of the story is that Andy Warhol, I, by the way, who's Logan? Your bedroom actually looks like Andy Warhol's. So... Andy Warhol was a pack rat, kept everything OCD, junk everywhere, junk in storage, kept every cassette, you know, cover, every magazine, everything. But then uh, purportedly, when you went into his bedroom, it was just a bed and a sole crucifix over the bedroom, or over the bed. So Andy Warhol was a weekly mass Catholic sometimes daily mass Catholic, somebody that volunteered at uh, his local parish's soup kitchen and who apparently converted other people to the Catholic faith. And when he died, he left money to the New York Academy that he helped found and was on the original board of where I currently work. Obviously his foundation, which is the main thing. And then the third thing that he left money to was his Eastern Rite Byzantine Catholic Church on the East Side. Like, where does that fit into the sacred secular paradigm? It doesn't. It's like mashes both things together and you can't pull them apart without it's like uprooting a potted plant. Like what's down there? Like you do that and the plant dies. So don't even go looking for it. It doesn't need your investigation of it. What you're saying kind of reminded me, like I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, very conservative, 
we I'm understood sorry. that no I, yeah i hear you i'm i'm not there anymore still a little conservative but not um we grew up in that <laughs> culture that was saying this is christian culture like keep fences around it right but then there's this weird dynamic when you had especially like with music so you have bands come out and there would be christian undertones in their music or in their lyrics or something like that and it was like our culture wanted to grab that and say see we can be relevant we can be cool we can we can impact secular world without having you know all this kind of weird stuff and uh and just the dynamic that that happened there they couldn't let art be art and then those bands would let them down so a great example would be Mumford and Sons like today right all these Christian undertones, all these kind of different things, you know, and then they say the F word in one of their songs and all of a sudden everybody's like, we tried, we tried to, we tried to claim them. We tried it, but man, they're going to do that. We don't want anything to do with them. And so it just reminded me, like you're saying that the, the secular sacred, it's even, even the, the, what we understand is our Christian culture. We, we desperately want to be out in that. But the second it kind of lets us down, we're just looking for enemies and we're looking for friends at the same time. It's just a weird dynamic. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm so glad you brought up Marcus Mumford because he's grew up in a big Larry Norman fan home. You know, these these are kids from a vineyard church. And Larry Norman started the vineyard church in his, you know, apartment in Beverly Hills adjacent. That's where the vineyard movement started Later, John Wimber got involved with it, but it, it started in uh, Caleb Maskell, by the way, is the expert on this. He's he's a Ph.D. historian from Princeton who he knows the whole story be, behind this. But, you know, um, I, I when I was writing the book, I, um, I give another Larry Norman analogy because I think there there are good ones here. Larry's um, third major release was called So Long Ago, The Garden. And it didn't refer to Jesus one time, you know, and we know that subsequent CCM uh, fidelity, according to cultural norms, was based upon how many JPMs there were a minute, Jesus per minute. Like, how many times could you refer to something? that was inside the conversation. And so, so long ago, the garden, which is my favorite Larry Norman record comes out on MGM. He's buck naked down to his nether regions. You can't quite tell where the pubic hair versus the, he took a photo of a lion in the, in Namibia, you know, and it's like, what's African grass and what's, you know, and, it doesn't refer to Jesus at all, and um, and yet Jesus is everywhere implied in the album, and the kinds of sharp, uh, condescending, dismissive, and charges of heresy that he got from, and he was the darling of the Jesus movement, and you know then it was like oh this is a great betrayal you know like he's satanic he's you know, because all of it wasn't in, it wasn't in your face. And um, all I can say from my study of Larry, or whether it's Marcus Mumford, or, or, you know, you know, whether it's Switchfoot or anybody is like, you know what, the artists are okay. They do fine. <laughs> like, you know, Derek Webb, I don't, whoever it is. Like whoever you want to point to, Haley Williams or, you know, the guys from the Killers all came out of LDS backgrounds. You know, they wind up being okay. The only people that lose out by pointing fingers and being condemnatory are are the Christians. Yeah, you bring this up in your book about um, the backlash that Larry Norman got from Christians, particularly kind of conspiracy, not conspiracy theories around him, but he was accused of being like 
it was weird, like pro-Catholic and a Marxist. I can't remember all of the different things that he was accused of. But All the things we hear today, he would have been <laughs> called a critical race theorist. <laughs> and that was hilarious to me reading it because it's like, wow, nothing, yeah. literally nothing has changed, you know, in terms of what he was accused of being. And do you have any ideas for, I mean, was it just because they couldn't categorize him? I mean, he was almost damned if he did, damned if he didn't, right? Like either he was explicit about Jesus, but even then when he was explicit, he's still a product of these, you know, he's, he's still got these Marxist undertones or whatever it might be. Do you have any answers for why he was just- Well, again, again, you need to have David Dark on your podcast because you know, he, he talks about a certain version of Christianity that is all about controlled experiments in marketing. And, and I think that at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to, um, which is how do we control the narrative? How do we ensure that someone is going to, you know, stay in these parameters that we're that we're comfortable with. And, 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 and by the way, I mean, there's so many, Larry was sort of the, the vanguard of all this. And there've been tons of people that have come along since. So David Dark's partner is Sarah Mason. You know, when I started listening to Sarah Mason back in the, you know, early nineties, Charlie Peacock was producing her. And she was on a Christian record label. And then she started writing music that didn't fit into the CCM format. And then all of a sudden she was banned. Like, we don't know what to make of this. It's not commercial. It's not people unscrewing light bulbs, lifting up their hands to the skies, you know. Um, and uh, the, the, the beat goes on. All I can say is that there, if, if, if people that are at majority set Christian institutions want to have any sort of ground for conversation between themselves and people who are in the arts, they have got to start stop this colonialist narrative where we have to control the conversation all the time. Where unless you say these words in this succession or, you know, you're, you're canceled or you're beyond the pale or, you know, and I, I mean, maybe, maybe the people, there's six people on, well, five, um, including myself, who care about this conversation. I mean, maybe this is it right here. Maybe that's all that there is. You know, it's like we could all fit in a Fiat 500C. You know, maybe other people don't really care. They don't care if they don't care about the art world. They don't care about the fact, for example, that Keith Haring was a Jesus freak. Keith Haring was totally a, like drew Larry Norman's one way sign, you know, in his notebooks a thousand times over. You know, how did we lose him? That's the kind of stuff we have to sit with. Like, you know, he was totally there. He was on board with Larry Norman, you know, but at some point he came to a realization that these people don't want to be in a conversation of any kind anymore. And it's, it's why every single significant artist that somehow by hook or by crook hangs on to their faith by the hair of their chinny chin chin towards the end winds up being catholic <laughs> so here's your argument for if you want to keep it uh you might want to consider being catholic because it's the only church that allows this kind of <laughs> these sorts of shenanigans to go on <laughs> When I think of bad Christian art, my mind immediately goes to Thomas Kincaid as somebody who grew up in a home uh, in which Thomas Kincaid paintings were on virtually every wall of the house. And 
uh, at Christmas time, we would have ornaments that were Thomas Kincaid. So it's a bit, it's a bit kitsch. It's a bit, you know, uh, a, a bit silly. My mom was a big fan and, you know, we all like what we like. That's all right. But uh, I wasn't particularly a fan. And I'm just wondering, what are, what are your thoughts about Thomas Kincaid in particular? This means a lot to me because I, um, I had a, um, a period in my life where it was Thomas Kincaid was, you know, kind of an embarrassment and, you know, he was, you know, quell horror, you know, he was, um, and then I started thinking about him through a Lacanian lens and it became a whole lot cooler to me because yes, is it schlock? Yes, it's like these happy little church scenes, you know, churches set in the middle of nowhere where nobody else could possibly a part of a congregation. <laughs> it's like totally implausible that anyone would actually go to church here. So, so there, the verisimilitude thing is shot. However, you know, when he died and I began, you know, reading, I wrote an article about this. Um, maybe he was actually signaling something a lot more terrifying than his, you know, Disney and, you know, Christian audience gave him credit for. Like, if you notice, like his houses all have that, like, in nuclear internal glow, you know, inside, which maybe some people are like, these are the hearth fires burning of Christian nationalism, but maybe Thomas can say, Kincaid was saying these are ovens in which people are being incinerated. I don't know, but I'm not, we don't know for sure, but anything can be deconstructed. You know, like when I show the, the, where, where I currently serve at the Academy, it's the bastion of progressive figurative art in the world. It's where you can still go where figurative art still matters and you get an MFA and you can still get seen by galleries in New York city. Okay. It's like the only place. Um, you show a Thomas Kincaid painting to, you know, uh, one of our faculty members like Vincent Desiderio or, you know, Bernardo Siciliano or Eric Fischel. And they're like, that guy is an insane talent. He's like a master. The way that it got applied, the art world would never be interested in. But you know what? The art world isn't interested in a lot of people that wind up doing really interesting stuff. So there's like the category of people that if you deconstruct it, it might, <laughs> it might, it might help you get there, you know? Um, and then there's just bad art. And the, the bad art, the problem with it, and here I'm echoing Jerry Saltz, the bad art, the problem with it is that it's too good. It's not trying to be bad. Like, I find art really interesting that looks like it's trying but failed. Like, I love that kind of stuff. But stuff that looks super polished and like it knows it telecasts in front of what it's doing. Like I already know the outcome. That's Christian art. And some people would say that's also Jeff Koons, you know. So um, now if we want to go leave the realm of visual art and we want to go into music or film. I mean, you know, now we're shooting fishes in a barrel because, I mean, there's so many examples of. I'll give you an example, a concrete example of something along these lines that almost happened but didn't happen. And I'll leave the names out of it so I don't incriminate anybody. So I was contacted. <laughs> I was contacted by someone that scores music for films in LA that had a friend who had sort of written a memoir about being a chaplain during the Iraq war and having been a, 
you know, police chaplain during the LA riots. And, you know, um, they liked, really liked my Larry Norman book and, and, you know, could this potentially be, you know, some sort of like memoir for this guy, but we need a book coach. So I said, I, I definitely am not interested in doing this, but I'm going to connect, connect you to somebody that could do this, whose family has background in the military, who's written books with other people. And um, so uh, it all got put together. I got sent the text messages like, we had a great day. Everything's happening. You know, thank you for connecting us. Looked like everything was great. Two Christian, you know, people connecting together. Looked like it was all happening. And then I contacted my friend who was supposed to like help as the book coach. And she said, that got, we got dropped. Like it got all the way up to there was a contract. They were drafting a contract. And then they saw on social media that I had gone with my adopted black daughter to a Black Lives Matter protest. And they said, we're not doing this with you anymore. So that's how bad art continues to, to keep happening is because that underlying animus against things that I think are very close to the heart of Yeshua, but nobody wants to get known. That's how the bad art continues to get disseminated. So they're going to go find someone who is an all lives matter person to write that book. And that's how the bad art gets perpetuated. I sense that the bad art always seems to be purely utilitarian in the sense that it always achieves or seeks to achieve a non-artistic purpose. Uh, and, and often uh, in a very sectarian way. So mm -hmm. um, God's not dead, which is, of course, this absurd narrative. Or fireproof. Yeah, every, every whatever Pure Flix, I think, is the company, right? Um, and, and, and every film... War Room. I've never even heard of that one, so uh, I'm impressed. Uh, <laughs> you're clearly entrenched in the bad art more than I am. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of film versions of this. Yeah, and of course, the, the way things turn out just intends to pander uh, Christians. Uh, it, it, it doesn't seek to challenge them. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't help them think critically. Uh, it really doesn't, probably doesn't even help their connection to any kind of God in any sense. Um, all it does is sharpen their confidence in their own social identity. Um, it, uh, you know, reinscribes these myths that everyone who's an atheist is actually an atheist because their parent died of cancer and they hate God, but really deep down they know that God exists. And so all the of their God intellectual... shaped yeah, exactly. And all of their intellectual endeavors are just this war against God. There's nothing, there's no actual academic or intellectual honesty with any atheist. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, like, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's caricatures all the way down. And, and what, what I, what I love about the, well, not what I love, but what I think is absolutely hilarious about the, the instance of God's not dead is that, you know, for like a decade on social media, there was this like fake story that, roamed around about this atheist professor that dropped his chalk and his jaw was agape because some random, you know, like student stood up to him and was able to prove God. And of course this was a stupid story and it circulated on social media because it was great for Christians to inculcate themselves, but of course was absolutely ridiculous. and was parodied in many excellent ways. But then the authors of these, this film is like, oh yeah, let's take that model <laughs> and actually make it like a legitimate piece of yeah. art. It's like, mate, this is, this is a, like almost a parody of itself and you're now making it into like serious art. Like it's just, it's amazing. But I, well, just, I so see that as utilitarian. I yeah. love that. I didn't know that, that. I didn't know that story. Thank you for telling me that. I have a word for this. 
And it's a word that I only learned, you know, within the last, I don't know, 10 years, but I think it describes the whole business. Uh, kayfabe. It, it's a, it's a term that it, that it is associated with professional wrestling. Now, of course, you know, a generation ago when I grew up, you kind of thought that maybe wrestling was choreographed, but you didn't know, like you didn't know for sure, because there was this brotherhood that protected the business and kayfabe meant the storyline that one told to keep the verisimilitude that what you're seeing is actually real when actually what it actually is, is marketing, okay? So in the 80s, or even in the, in, in the, in the 70s, kayfabe is the most profitable kind of sport. It's like far more profitable than, than, um, than boxing now, than, than horse racing, than, you know, AA, you know, you know, WU, like amateur wrestling. So, but then there came this, you know, Vince McMahon finally gave up the business for tax reasons by saying, no, all of this is actually scripted and choreographed. We know it's not, we know that it's not a competitive sport in the sense that two titans get in the ring and the outcome is unknown unless occasionally it goes wrong and then it's what they call a shoot where it becomes real like the fight is real like every now and again that happens but it's not what's supposed to happen so i think most of christian art is kayfabe like the outcome is already settled like Take Fireproof, for example. I think I saw Fireproof. I, I didn't see Fireproof. I watched it later on, you know, just to do what we're doing now. But uh, I, I went to see some other film, and it was in Jackson, Tennessee. So it's White Christian America is going to see Fireproof. They're coming out, and everybody's raving about it, you know, because all of the churches, like, this is the way they earn such big box office. It's like the churches get involved. You know, how do we mobilize mega church pastors and networks of churches so that everybody goes and sees the same thing at the same time? It's kayfabe. And so everybody was coming out saying it was such an uplifting movie, like people that just want to eat popcorn and not be bothered by realities. But I talked to one friend from a, you know, who has still had the antenna of, of, uh, of, you know, a rational mind out there. And I'll never forget what she said. She's like, okay, so I saw this film and the premise of it is that there's this gorgeous guy and there's this gorgeous girl and they're both super successful, but um, he kind of has a problem with porn. And so they break up, but then he repents, and then the dish ran away with the spoon. And she's like, I don't get what the problem is here. They're both rich white people with no problems other than this like porn thing that he gets over and now everything's okay. It's kayfabe. It's like never in that story could it have wound up any other way than the proposed ending, you know, and people, I have come to believe this in my deepest heart of hearts, that people prefer kayfabe to shoot. And one thing I also know is that the life of Yeshua of Nazareth was shoot and not kayfabe. <laughs> and, um, but nobody's interested in the, what actually happened. 
they're interested in their, you know, as Martin Luther said, their theology of glory rather than the theology of the cross. It is deeply ironic that I didn't know uh, Fireproof was about pornography. Uh, it, it's ironic because uh, basically the whole film is just uh, Christian fantasy worldview porn, isn't it? Like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's porn. It's there to it's feed porn. you, like. <laughs> what what does por, you know what does you know perversion mean? Well, we know from Slavoj Žižek that it means looking at a through a different window than everybody else looks through. That's what a pervert is, and so it's it's you're looking at it a way that the average person would say that's screwed up. Like I would never look at it that way, you know. So that's what Christian art is most of the time, and I. I've said this once and Lecrae quoted me, so now I can say that this is my quote. Christian is the greatest of all possible adjectives and, or the greatest of all possible nouns and the lamest of all adjectives. It works as a noun, it does not work as an adjective. Anytime you put Christian in front of film or art or NASCAR or whatever, it always winds up being ooh, and nobody takes it seriously, which if you're actually interested in cultural engagement, you would want Terrence Malick on your team, who we all know now is a pretty devoted believer, like he believes the actual stuff. And so, um, yeah, yeah, so that's why we get a hidden life. That is probably the most truly Christian movie I've seen in a long time. I mean, unbelievable. For sure. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I love your turn, the, or your idea behind kayfabe because we're going to be doing a series next on apologetics. And essentially we're going to be talking about how that is what quote unquote Christian apologetics has become. By, by the way, there's different kinds of, I, I could do a whole thing on wrestling here, but when I was growing up, there were three leagues. There was the AWA, the NWA, and then there was the WWF. The WWF was like super cartoony, super saccharine. It was like, you know, you could, it was hard to believe that that was real. But then there was like you had back in the day before he joined the WWF, you had Rick Flair and Nick Bockwinkle and Bruiser Brody, and they were bloody, and it looked like it could be real. So, like, there's different variations of kayfabe. Like, Fireproof and God's Not Dead is like WWF kayfabe. But then the Apologetic Center, you know, at, you know, um, super, you know, conservative evangelical Christian university is also kayfabe, but it's just not as cartoonish as maybe, maybe they might actually have a conversation with John Dominic Croissant, you know, oh, they might have a debate or something like that, but it's still kayfabe because they're still producing it. They're editing it. They're cutting it, you know. Well, and really, it's it, it's also a straw man factory, too. I mean, this is what you then discover when you are trained and equipped in all of the, the worldview conferences, right? This is how we prepare you for your own personal God's Not Dead scene with your own tenured professor, you know, who ha has like 30 years and lots of degrees of experience on you. But you, in this moment, if you register for this con conference and you, you know, learn our five-step surefire way of stumping this person... <laughs> You know, then you won't lose your faith when you go to college. And then when kids get to college and they're like, oh, so these ideas are not nearly as hairy and gross as what how they were presented to me in our, you know, stage fight. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Then it really does create a crisis of faith for young people. Can I can I give you a perfect example of it can create a crisis of faith and has done it, you know, a zillion times over. But can I give you an example of where something could have gone kayfabe but didn't and made the person a better person? Take C.S. Lewis's debate where he got, you know, um, he got his head handed to him from Elizabeth Anscombe on miracles. Elizabeth Anscombe 
like sent the nuclear torpedo in Oxford train studying with Wittgenstein critiqued Lewis's view and guess what C.S. Lewis who everybody touts is like par excellence he's above the fray could you know like would would easily be the best of any of his atheist intellectual peers guess what Elizabeth Anscombe is a is a very very you know uh orthodox catholic but it's like i've studied with wittgenstein and i've been to oxford this argument doesn't fly and c.s lewis says guess what maybe i'm not as philosophically sophisticated as i thought i was i might have to rethink that that's where you go shoot instead of kayfabe. That's such a and, great example. That I mean, that's exactly what we need. This is just my own personal soapbox, but that's what we need more of in like this generation of Christian philosophers who can be the Anscombs in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I would love one example to the contrary. Yeah, can't think of one right now. Um, but you know, like look at Father John Meyer who wrote. I mean, by any attestation, wrote the most, you know, robust scholarly treatment of the historical Jesus. In uh, I correspond with him, right? You know, uh, people who are, you know, atheists, people in the guild, they take Father John Meyer seriously. Like Reza Aslan, who wrote Zealot. The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, dedicates his book to Father John Meyer. I mean, he's not even a Christian. Like, he's just writing a book because he's to like, but Father John Meyer is a, is a, like, he's endorsed by Pope Benedict XVI. Now I'm just, now I've gone to meddling at this point. Maybe one more question. I've got, I'm, I'm like an elderly blue plate special person. I've got 5.30 dinner reservations, so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I frequently said, like, you know, like, you know, thinking about art, like, there's been a strain of, of Christians that are believing that Disney is uh, diluting our children in, you know, non-Christian non beliefs, the, the whole let it go syndrome, and, and kind of that fear-based thing about film. Like, how do we navigate those conversations, right? When you're like, let it go doesn't have well, a concept. Should we not watch it? Well, um, I, I mean, that is a really, really great question. And all I can tell you, I won't reveal their names, but there are scores of evangelicals who work for Disney. <laughs> you know, and maybe people on a journey away from it, but like that is their core. Like who are very, very high up, who are like in that editing room and you know um i i can say this because i was in the room and i don't think this would be controversial but you know i was invited with mako fujimura and Alyssa wilkinson to do a, a screening of darren aronofsky's noah film and you know i wrote a review of it um for the gospel coalition and it probably doesn't exist anymore because people hated that movie and they didn't want to hear it and like they wanted to dismiss it. <clears throat> um, all I can tell you is that Darren Aronofsky said, you know, when he was talking to us, like, I grew up in a Jewish home. The Bible stories meant everything to me in my childhood. And I don't know how I would think outside of biblical categories in my own films now. Because a biblical imagination, and um, I just wanted to do it one time as like an homage to how important the Bible is to me. So, you know, why can't we embrace that? Why do we have to say there were no, you know, uh, fire monsters trying to take down the ark. Who cares? Like, there's crazier stuff than that in the Bible. I mean, that's not totally implausible. <laughs> like, yeah. 
<laughs> Does that Not, make sense? So yeah, oh yeah. I, I I would say that he did it again with Mother, though. Yeah, I was actually just thinking that exact same themes that come up in Mother. That was such a fascinating movie. One hundred percent. I had the flu while watching Mother. Try it that way. And the full onset of the flu that just happened while I was uh, so. Anyway, you guys are awesome. I'm, I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing. I love you all, and I salute everything that you're trying to do. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye, bye guys. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye.